Well, welcome to our midweek service. This is uh, one of those days that kind of gets burned into your uh, memory and your conscience. It's February the 3rd, 2021. And uh, I just want to start out by saying that uh, as I think about what happened a year ago today when uh, Rachel Freeman went to heaven, and I think about what the Freeman family has gone through since then, uh, I just want to uh, say my heart goes out to them, and I hope that you're praying for them, and to also know that uh, as life goes on, so does grief, and so does heartache, and there's, uh, it's not just getting through the first year. Sometimes people think there's something magical about getting through that first year. Um, I assure you there's not, there's not, it still hurts. Uh, maybe as we think about the first year and all of the first things, the first birthday without someone we love, the first Christmas without someone we love, uh, granted that probably does, uh, give us some experience. And, um, the second time it happens, maybe we're more ready for that but it still uh, is there and the emptiness is there and the hurt is still there and you know the enemy would love to stir up anything they can to take away hope and to uh, bring despair and so we need to remember those who are suffering and uh, this is just a time for us to think about michael and jody and daniel and some of the things that uh, they must be going through. And so to the Freeman family, I just want to say as your pastor on behalf of the church, your church family loves you, and your church family is behind you, and your church family is praying for you, and uh, we're very proud of you and your testimony for Christ. Now, we're going to be looking, as we have been for the past few weeks, at Psalm 33, going to take another section. And I think that um, it fits when we are going to kind of look at this psalm about rejoicing. And we're going to talk a little bit about hope today. And so many people feel so hopeless and they feel so helpless and they feel like life has let them down. You don't have to go very far or talk to very many people when they feel like that they've gotten a raw deal from life. This is not what I expected. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Or they'll turn it around and they'll say, um, this should have happened. I should have had this career. I should have had this degree. I should have had this income. I should still be married or I should have this happening with my children. You've, you've heard that kind of stuff on and on and on. Well, as uh, David writes about this, he gives some, of course, words of wisdom. And uh, these are not just from David, but they come from the Lord himself. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. And so that's the case here. Verse 16 says, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope 
for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who, here's our word again, hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them in uh, keep them alive in famine. So where is hope found and where are you looking for your hope? In uh, Psalm 127, it says, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from uh, whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And I've heard people uh, talk about that and go, oh, I just love the hills because I see the Lord and I see his help. That's not what that psalmist was saying. He was saying, I lift up my eyes to those hills. And the hills around Jerusalem were the hills that the psalmist had seen all of his life, all of his life. If he were born and raised in Jerusalem, he had seen those hills from uh, the time he was born. If he were from outside of Jerusalem, then he saw those familiar hills every time he came to Jerusalem for Passover or some feast or festival at the temple. Oh, those hills, those hills. And the hills always seemed the same. They were always there and they were standing firm and life might change. There might be a famine, but there were still the hills. There might be an invading army, but the hills were still there. Mom or dad may have gone on to be with the Lord, but the hills were still there. Um, economic upturns, downturns may take place, but the hills are still there. You see what the psalmist was saying? I lift up my eyes to those familiar, unchanging, seemingly forever hills. Where does my help come from? Not from the hills, not from the stability, not from the sameness, not from all of the circumstances of life being familiar like those hills. My help comes from the Lord. In a way, that's what is being said in Psalm 33. You know, there are a lot of things that can change. You know, a king can have a great, great skilled army, and it can be a big army, lots of manpower, lots of weaponry, lots of uh, horses, lots of whatever they would have back then. You know, we might think in terms of artillery and aircraft and all of that. A king could have a lot of those kind of things and feel good. I'm secure. No one's going to be able to defeat us. But then things can change. And maybe uh, you have a war and you have to expend those weapons. You have to use up your armaments. And then about the time you get peace and you go, oh, we survived. What if another enemy attacks while you're down? What if another enemy attacks when you are not expecting it? When you haven't had time to restock everything, things can change in a hurry. And can you imagine a king 
if he was saying, oh, if this were only six years ago, oh, if it were only like it were back in the, and he names a decade or a time period when he had a large army, when he had skilled officers, when he had a general staff that could plan and execute the uh, plans of war. Oh, it would be so much better then. David is simply saying, because of the uncertainties of life, no matter what you do or think you need, it's never going to be quite enough. It's never really going to bring security to your heart and to your life. You can look back and think about the times when maybe your family was intact and your family was healthy, when the kids were little and they depended upon you and they pretty much did what you said and what you thought. Now they're grown. They're out on their own. They may not be living for the Lord. Oh, it's easy to retreat back into thinking about what things could have been or should have been or what we wish they were instead of dealing with the way things really are. And we have a tendency to go back and almost idolize those times before. We can romanticize those times. Oh, those were good times. I uh, grew up under parents and grandparents who lived through the Great Depression. And depending on the stories that they would tell, depending on what kind of mood they were in, you either got the idea that the Great Depression, boy, that was the time for living. Those were the good old days. Things were solid and they were fun and all of that. Then you listen to in another um, situation and you wonder how they survived. They must have been the most horrible, the most troublesome, the most uh, difficult days mankind has ever lived through. It's amazing how we do that. And it's amazing how the truth is during the Depression, my family wanted out of that very, very, very badly. And they would not choose to go back to those days for anything in the world. But true to life, not everything is as bad as it seems, nor is it as good as it might seem. We have a way of kind of sanitizing some things and cleaning them up and making them better than they really were. Or we can flip that over and we can make things much worse than they really were, right? And when you uh, think about the term hope and you think about that being optimism, faith, confident assurance, uh, the idea that even if times are bad, even if things are troublesome, it's going to get better. We're going to make it through this. We're going to get out of this. If you think about hope like that, and you think about it in terms of a king, what is a king most concerned about? Preserving his kingdom, preserving his people, 
winning the battle, keeping his territory, keeping the enemy out, driving them back to where they go, where they belong, and they go back home, and the kingdom can once again be in peace. And David, as a king, is writing, and he says, number one, there's a false hope, and what would that be? Okay, I kind of agonized a little over this, because um, verse 16 says, no king is saved by the multitude of an army, and a mighty man is not delivered by great strength. And part of me wanted to go, well, yeah, he is. I've, I've seen um, mighty men that could fight well. I've seen them handle people and get out of fights. And uh, our own country, I mean, we have the mightiest military on the planet. I'm sure that has kept us out of more things than we even realize. I mean, we are, we're not privy, privy to the um, intelligence of the government. I wonder how many times there have been credible threats that in any other situation, the enemy would have carried out their goals except they're afraid to because of the power of our military. And, and that seemed to be uh, contradictory. Seemed like, well, that didn't work because I've seen bullies on the playground at school that were kind of like a, a mighty man and they just beat up other people. And I've you know, heard stories about our own country from Washington all the way down to uh, modern times and the way that our military has defeated, we've defeated our foes. What, what is he talking about? What, what can this possibly mean? And um, I began to think about what it would be if you're a king and you've got a huge army. Back in David's day, the king would ride out in front of the uh, army and the army would rally around the king. You see, back in the days when Israel didn't have a king and all they had was God. See, remember that? And they told Samuel, we want a king like the other nations. You know what they were saying? We want someone we can see. We want someone we can follow. We want someone that we can rally around and say, you know, for, for God and our king, you know, we fight these battles, that type of thing. Somebody that can... Uh, rally us, somebody that can give, you know, a big speech, somebody who looks good on a white horse, those kind of things. They wanted something that they could see. God just wasn't good enough. And David, in him, they had that. David was a warrior. David was a fighter. David was someone who could inspire. David was someone who could... Uh, um, rally the troops, I guess we would say. And yet David said, even when you are, ready for this, a popular king like David, even when you are the kind of, of king, the kind of person, and you had the uh, kind of personality that everybody just said, let's, let's go and let's do this for David. David was saying that uh, this is, a false hope, popularity, and power. You see, with David being Israel's greatest king, there were those times when the people in Israel thought that David could do 
no wrong. Can you imagine what it was like when David, as a junior high kid, was able to cause Goliath to topple, and then he cut off his head? Everybody was talking about David, right? Later on, the popularity of David caused him trouble with his father-in-law, King Saul, because the uh, top hit on the radio was, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And, uh, you know, that got a spear thrown at David not too long after that by Saul. David has to go on the run. David becomes a fugitive. And, uh, you know, during that, he kind of became a folk hero, didn't he? And whenever he became the king, he was able to unite all of the tribes of Israel. All of the tribes. The tribes had kind of been more independently functioning before then. And then after the death of Saul and after the just this colossal failure in so many ways of the monarchy, the tribes kind of functioned on their own. But when David was uh, recognized as king by all of the tribes, moving the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, oh, David was it. And David could rally an army. He could rally the troops. He could make the speeches. Whatever he did uh, just had all of the people behind him. But David also had his down points too, didn't he? And David understood that whatever your successes might have been in the past and whatever you might think of yourself now or the people that think of you now, that can change so rapidly. Ask Donald Trump what that's like. I remember back in 1980 thinking about what it must have been like for someone like President Carter. You're elected in 1976, and by 1980, they're electing someone else. I mean, how does that feel? What kind of rejection is going on in your life? And, and what do you think about all of that? It happens to presidents all the time, doesn't it? happens to us. Sometimes you can be the hero of your family and you can go to hero from hero to zero in about, I don't know, a minute or two. All that has to happen is you disagree or you have a different opinion or something like that or you don't support somebody in the family that they think you ought to support them no matter what. And uh, boy, things can really, really change and they can change in a hurry. And what David, I think, is saying here, the idea of being popular, having power, and uh, all of the people rallying around you, that's kind of a vain or empty hope because a lot of times it's not as real as it might seem. And it can change, and it can change in a hurry. So I just want to challenge you. If you're a person who thinks that the more people who like me, the more people who will rally around me, the more people that I can persuade, the more people who say good things about me and defend me, that'll set me up for the rest of my life or really make me secure. Think about what David is saying. Think about what David went through, the times he was exiled, the times he had to run for his life, even from his own son, Absalom. It, it's a vain thing. It's a vain thing to hope in. And if you think that popularity would change your life, if I could just get people to like me, support me, 
to stand with me. Man, that must be nice. Well, it probably is while it lasts. It just doesn't last. Secondly, here's another false hope. He talks about the horse. And he says, a horse is a vain hope for safety. You know, if I just had the right kind of horse. My problem is I don't have a fast enough or a big enough or a strong enough or, uh, you know, anything like that uh, type of a horse. My horse gets afraid in battle. My horse can't do anything. My horse is just a plow horse. It's not a race horse. But if I had a race horse, man, that would be something. Um, Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Well, I got to thinking about false hope. What could that be? How about possessions and performance? You see, if I had more and they had greater ability, they could perform better, whether it's a horse or whatever it might be, then I would really be something. And David said that's a vain hope for safety. Why? Because it just doesn't always work. Sometimes your horse gets shot out from under you, doesn't it? Sometimes you get the fastest horse, and then you find out there's somebody with a little bit faster horse, a little bit better horse than what you have. You know, there's always a new model in there. There's always something where technology uh, is a little bit better. Right, right now, you've got everything you could ever want until that new thing comes out, the new car, the new phone, the new computer, whatever, new clothes, all kinds of things that happen. And um, the Bible says that all that's in the world is the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And so the devil always has something out there to catch your eye. He always has something out there that is going to say to you, oh, that would satisfy me if I only had that. And then the idea, the pride of life, you would be somebody if you only had that. People would respect you. People would follow you. You could really do something with that. And it's a never-ending thing, isn't it? And I think that's what David is talking about here because a horse back in those days meant so much more than just having a pet or having an animal. It was the difference between sometimes life or death and battle, wasn't it? And yet David is saying, if you put your trust in the horse, what are you going to do when the horse is captured? What are you going to do when the horse dies? What are you going to do when the horse is wounded? What are you going to do when somebody has a bigger and a better horse? And David said, that is a false hope. And so if you were one of these people that you think that what's going to make you valuable, what's going to make you uh, productive, what's going to make you really have status is the stuff that you have. Let me just remind you that uh, a man's life doesn't consist in the possessions that he has, right? And when you think about all of that, one of these days you're going to die and uh, someone asked when they heard that a rich man died, how much did he leave? And the answer was all of it, all of it. And so we dare not try to find our hope in those kind of things, things like um, 
possessions and how well they perform. Because there's always something that's going to happen to that. Number three, notice how David says, here's the contrast. There's protection and peace in the Lord. Verse 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Now, when it says the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, maybe you're a person who thinks that if the Lord is watching you, all he's going to do is see what is wrong. Well, he certainly would do that because he's an all-knowing God, right? But keep it in the context here. David is talking about a king who finds security in an army and a king who has the best horse that money could buy. And what is the king thinking that that army or that horse is going to do? Well, they're going to be a protection. They're going to prolong his life. They're going to bring success to him, okay? And I think what David is saying, when the eye of the Lord is on you, he's saying, you've got something far better than anything an army could do, maybe even a fickle army could do. You've got something far better than the best horse that money could buy. You've got God. And you've got a God who is watching over you a God who knows what you're doing and a God who also knows what the enemy is doing. A God who is able to stand with you. A God who is able to provide for all of your needs. A God who is able to fight your battles for you so that you come out more than a conqueror, as Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 8. You come out of all of this standing strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, because an all-seeing, all-watching God knows what you need before you know you need it, and he knows what you need based upon what the enemy is going to do, because God knows what the enemy is going to do, how they're going to attack, what they're going to use in their attack before the enemy has even planned to do it. You see how important that is? Having the eye of the Lord watching us in a positive way, not a negative way, in a protective way, in a providing way. Did you know, for example, that the word provide comes from two Latin words, pro, video? Well, we know pro means before, don't we? And we know video means to see. And the idea is that whatever it is you need, whatever it is you're going to need decades from now, God's already seen it. He has already provided for it because he has seen it before it even comes. Well, that would certainly be true in this particular passage. Protecting the king, protecting the kingdom, far better to trust in the Lord than to trust into a horse that dies, a horse that stumbles, a horse that gets sick, a horse that can be shot. Far better than to trust in an army that stands around you and yet they can turn against you later on like they did in David's life at various times. And then number four, the last thing, 
Think about the contrast. Power and provision for life. Power and provision for life. You see, how big of an army do you need? It's kind of a guess when you boil it down. Kind of a guess. Some people have been fooled. Our country exists because we defeated the British back in the 1700s, and they were a superpower in every sense of the word. When you put it all down on paper and you put it all down in terms of training, in terms of talent, in terms of money, in terms of ability, all of that kind of stuff, we should have lost that war so many times. And yet what happened? The eye of the Lord was upon us and God raised up a great nation. And how did he do it? By his might, by his power. There are so many stories in the Revolutionary War about how weather just happened, praise chance, to cooperate with what the Continental Army needed to do to the detriment of the British. Well, we've seen these stories. We've heard these stories, not just in our own country, but in so many others, in Israel in particular. Israel should not exist today. When they declared themselves to be a nation in 1948, I believe it was, the world had put a moratorium on selling them arms, weapons, airplanes. And at the same time, there was something like five Arab nations, well-funded by the Soviet Union, who declared war on Israel on day one. And yet Israel won. 1967, Israel is attacked. They should have been defeated, and yet they won, and they gained territory. 1973, I mean, it's been frustrating for the Arabs and the Palestinians because God has been watching out for all of them. Why? Because God has delivered them, verse 19, delivered their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. You know, there's more than one kind of famine. Sometimes there's not enough water Sometimes not enough food, sometimes not enough munitions. Sometimes the book of Amos talks about a famine even of the word of God. And yet in all of those times, what does God do? He sustains his people because there's more to hope in than just power and popularity. There's more to hope in than just possessions and performance. We hope in the Lord, and the Lord is sovereignly in control of everything. And whatever it is you face in life, you may have somebody in your family, and they are addicted to drugs. You keep praying for them, and you keep loving them, because our God rules and reigns over addiction. It may be somebody that is involved in immorality into pornography or an illicit affair or anything like that. You keep praying for them 
because God can change a heart. You think about all of the stuff that you worry about, all of the things you want for your children. And if you're trying to make your child the most popular kid on the playground or on the ball team or in the neighborhood or wherever, you're teaching them to hope in the wrong things. If you're constantly buying them the newest, the brightest, the shiniest, the best, the most technological, whatever it may be, and you're teaching them to hope in their possessions like the king might hope in their horse, you're teaching them to trust in the wrong thing. But show them a real God and show them a God that answers prayer. And you will be giving them a gift that will see them through the worst times that they will go through. And they'll come out on the other side with even a greater faith in God. And in the meantime, make sure that your hope is in the right place because you never know. A year ago, Michael and Jody had no idea that they would go through what they have gone through, that they would be chosen for that. But think about the testimony that they have had. And think about this. You don't know what the future holds for you either. But hope in God. And teach your family to hope in God as well. Because he's the one that never fails. Don't fall for the falsehood. Stand on the solid rock. Thank you so much for taking time to listen. And I pray that the Lord will bless you and that you will have a wonderful week. We will see you on Sunday.